Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders. And it's the summer break, but we still have Punk Rock Farmer Friday going on. I'm Laura Jones here with Al Dynstrick 9. Hey, Al. Hey, it's great to be here. All right, so we're sharing a mic in our studio over at Salt Lake Community <laughs> College. Uh, got a couple of great conversations coming up. And before you tell us what's on the show, tell me what's going on in your garden. I finally got out there. I've been very busy at work, and I tied up all the tomato plants, and I'm getting a few tomatoes, but I have so many greenies. It's going to be a really good year once they start to come. Um, I think it might, it looks better than last year, for sure, to me. So you're talking a bumper crop of tomatoes, and I hope that it is because mine aren't doing so hot. But coming up on the show tonight on the Urban Farm Report, we got a tag team conversation uh, we're going to talk with a nutritionist. She's a registered diet technician who works with the ladies in Jamestown at Green Phoenix Farm. But what I'm really excited for is our new series where you're going and visiting people's gardens, talking to other punk rock farmers. So who's up first? Really excited. We have John Saltis from City Weekly. I got to go check out his garden. Uh, we we got to partake a little bit on, and eat some things from the garden, drink a little Italian wine. Really, really nice. This is a great conversation coming up. And then Shannon Barm uh, from Green Phoenix Farm. Also on the way, Skywatcher Leo T back with another report, Many Cultures, One Sky. Music. So coming up, Craft Lake City DIY Festival, 13th Annual, happens August 13th, 14th, and 15th at the Utah State Fair Park. We're going to be featuring music from local bands that are playing the festival the next week or so. Here's Audrey Lockie, Craft Lake City's entertainment coordinator, to tell us more about the music at this year's fest. So we got those two stages, the Slug Mag stage and the KRCL stage. Um, we receive a lot of applicants every year to play, uh, lots of people who are excited to play. And then from there, we, you know, meet as a team and, and select a lineup and pick something. But yes, all local performers, all Utah musicians and dancers and performers and stuff like that. So let's get to some homegrown music. First up, a band that kind of piqued my interest, Backhand. Tell me about them before we play a tune. For sure. So Backhand are a... Uh, punk group based out of Provo. Uh, they're affiliated with this new little label called Up Here Records, who is kind of pretty prolific in their short time around releasing music from a lot of indie artists and stuff. But yeah, Backhand is, is great. They got a good, like, you know, kind of high strung, kind of snotty sound. It's, it, it's, it's really good. I dig it. And when are they going to play at the festival? They are closing out the Slug Mag stage on Saturday night from 7 to 7.30. This is Backhand doing Sleep Sweat. Fresh and homegrown on KRCL 90.9.
Got your Leo T here. Look up, look around, and get lost in space. Way lost. And we can once again go farther out, or is it further? As the Hubble Space Telescope is back up and running, thanks to NASA scientists who know how to think through a problem and solve it. That's using the old bean. Keep it up. Hubble, as you know, is responsible for taking some of the deepest and most amazing space images of all from high Earth orbit, including what looks like an empty spot in space in the constellation Virgo, but when imaged produced a huge flurry of galaxies way out there. And this week a couple of minor meteor showers peak and the Perseids begin a few at a time and grow and crescendo from Piamissimo to Mezzoforte on the nights of August 11th and 12th. It'll be very many an hour and keep an eye out for some colorful fireballs that are created when the meteors hit the Earth's atmosphere. And near Virgo, but higher in the east, look for the fourth star of the Summer Triangle. Yeah, I know that's not a triangle anymore, is it? The next brightest star, though, near the Summer Triangle is Razzlehag, which is the head of Ophiuchus. Once you find the triangle above the mountains, the slick rock or rolling ocean, how do you do that? Well, you raise your eyes high to a spot. Bright, sparkling white blue vega. You can't miss it. Look to the lower left of it for big yellow white Deneb. It's big. Then, to see the other point of the triangle to the lower right of Vega is Altair, which is a nice white giant. Next, it's Razzlehag. It's three fists to the right of Vega and three fists upper right of Altair. It's a blue-white star that needs a little company, and so it hangs with a triangle. And now we have a giant flattened quadrilateral. And on this date, July 30th, 1971, Apollo 15 completed its mission July 26, 1971 to August 7th, 1971. This mission was the longest one to date to stay on the moon, with a greater focus on science and other landings. Apollo 15 featured exploration with the first lunar rover of the mountainous Hadley Apennine region. They set up and activated a lunar surface experiments, many of them, and one of those was to set up a reflector to reflect lasers from Earth to precisely measure the distance and wobble of the Earth and the Moon and possibly be able to predict earthquakes. David Scott, James Irwin, and Al Worden were the crew. James Irwin penned one of my favorite books by an astronaut. It's worth looking into. It's called To Rule the Night. Very descriptive. Irwin graduated from Earth and Salt Lake City's East High School. A moon rock from the mission is on display at the Gateway Planetarium. That's kind of amazing. Go see it. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's many cultures, one sky. Native American tribes of North, South, and Central America consider the jaguar, especially in its Black Panther form, to wield powerful magic. Shamans would invoke jaguar power to heal diseases or find power to overcome enemies. And in the highlands of Mexico, it symbolizes the sky, heaven, and divinity. The Tucano and Cobuya people of the Amazon use the stars that others call Cetus the Whale. They see a jaguar in the sky. It's hanging out with water-related constellations, Aquarius and Pisces. Look for these faint constellations above the horizon in the southeast. They're out of the galactic plane, so that's way out in space. And you can see many galaxies, distant galaxies, I guess, if you have a telescope or uh, you're in a really good dark spot. They're visible because it's unobscured by dust from the Milky Way. So keep your imagination and hope alive as we look up, look around, and get a little lost in space. Got to watch your Leo T with Laura Jones and Aldine, the punk rock farmer on KRCL. Thank you, Skywatcher Leo T. Now it's time for Aldine's one-on-one conversation with John Saltis. Yes, he may be the founder and publisher of City Weekly, but he also grows a mean garden. Here's Al. Hey, John. How you doing, man? It's great to see you. 
Hi, Al. How are you? It's been three days or two. <laughs> Boy, we had a really nice, uh, nice little dinner. Some hors d'oeuvres and stuff with some Greek cheese, some Italian wine. Uh, the same wine we drank at the table when we were kids. You went, made sure we had that. That was pretty nice of you. Well, my grandfather always had that little tiny glass of wine. He had one or two a day, regardless, every day. Uh, and it was that style of wine. It was Gallo wine or Paisano or I can't. Kerbari, Kerbari, yeah, the other yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just a good red table wine, nothing fancy, but also no nitrates, you know, so no headache. Right. So uh, our Mediterranean heritage is, is pretty closely tied together, and uh, Greco-Roman even, we'll call it, and it, maybe it's gone on for centuries, and that kind of links us. And uh, gardening comes down through grandfathers and fathers and... Uh, you sort of have that same story. That's that's where your gardening history comes from. Yeah, I mean, having been to Greece multiple times, but I see it, but also here, all of the Greek families I knew planted something. And so my grandfather, uh, he had a nice garden up in Bingham Canyon. Uh, and I say nice, I mean, it was, it was scrabble soil. I mean, it, it was nice as going to get, but he grew tomatoes, zucchini, cucumbers, you know, some odds and ends, vegetables and plant crops. And that kind of got the installation going for me to, you know, to, to get me wanting to do it because I helped him so much, you know, he, he was old yeah. and uh, and the fruit trees, which you do and I don't, but uh, yeah, it came through that. And I think that that's a common heritage of the, you know, rock scrabble people that comprise the rural parts of Italy and Greece. And plus we're related. I think we talked about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and then uh... You, I've toured your garden and you have, a, you know, you have a little bit of everything, but you have the stuff that you want to cook with and the stuff that stuff that you're growing, you're using on the table. And there's some, you know, squash and, and, the, and potatoes and things, but uh, we always have something that's to our heritage or that we hold close and, and pass on along. And the, the dish that we had was an amaranth dish. Tell us about it a little bit. Yeah. Uh so amaranth grows uh, in, in all kinds of varieties, and many people grow it as, a, as just a ornamental flower. Uh, I wasn't introduced to it young. I never had it young. I had it later in life, you know, some Greeks introduced me to it. And I have, as you saw, the big green stalks, but then the red head at the top and six feet tall. It also goes green about three or four feet tall, and there's other kinds of amaranth. But uh, it's in Greek, we call it vlita. It's a, that's the Greek word for it. And Greeks are just enamored of greens, say from dandelions to mustard greens to spinach to you name it, chards, all that stuff. They're, they're greens on every meal table. Amaranth, as you know, isn't really a green because it's not that kind of a it's a it's a it's a tree almost when you're so big. <laughs> right. But, you know, you just cut the leaves off and, and trim the stalks, and you can eat much of the stalk. Boil it for 10-15 minutes, or the red turns green, it's done. And uh, it's about as healthy as it gets. There's not too many grown plants that have more nutrients in than blita. So. And, you know, um, there's a variety also that's called pigweed or it's a it's another variety of amaranth. It's uh -huh. called it's called pigweed because it's a it's 
uh, invasive kind of a weed that no one that it comes in your garden, but most folks don't know that they can eat it. I, I, I don't think it has the same shaped leaf as the one that you have. And I have it growing in my garden and I'm snipping it and I'm going to try it and, and make sure it's about the same and see, uh, cause that's something we can pass on and people probably have that growing and they don't even know it. Well, yeah. And I gave you some, but I mean, Amaranth, I don't know how many plants are in the garden. I don't plant it cognitively. I just throw seeds around in the fall and in the, in the spring when the water hits them, they come up all over the place. So they're growing, as you saw, interspersed with my tomatoes, interspersed with the cucumbers, interspersed with the beans. And in fact, it's not bad in the beans or the tomatoes because it produces a stock they can both grow up. And I did what you saw in my garden was a lot of companion crop planting and it's a tight garden. It's not a small garden per se, but it's loaded with produce. And so those kind of little things that you can do, like mix them up, produce produces so much more. But amaranth will feed a family for a heck of a long time. I mean, it just keeps on coming. You chop it off and boy, here it comes again. So and we've got lots of it in the freezer still already. We talked about uh, some friends and some folks we know that you're driving down the road and all of a sudden they see some weeds in the, in the parking lot or, or in a field growing yeah. and stop the car fast and say, Hey, well, let's like, come here. Let's go over here and check this out. Yeah, the Greek word for greens is horta, which we get the word horticulture from. So um, horta, you know, the greens, they'll be driving and they'll see something off the side that I would consider a weed or someone else. And maybe somebody's tried to poison it. But, you know, somebody told me a weed is just a flower out of, that's uh, out of place. So uh, I don't know. And I, I don't know that they're weeds per se, but they're certainly uh, not a garden variety crop. And boy, they'll bring bushels of that stuff. I mean, they just chop it down. All the, and it's getting less and less available to them because we keep on chopping up and building homes and the riversides are gone along the Jordan River, whatever, the canal banks. So it's harder and harder to find that for them, but they find it. Uh, believe me, he finds it. My neighbors do. He's got a neighbor across the street from Greece and he'll bring the damnedest stuff home. And it's like, you sure? And he said, well, I washed it. And I go, I don't know if that really matters, but yeah, I'll try a dish, whatever. All right, John L. I'm buttoning in here in your conversation because I did not make it out there to meet with you guys, but what you're going you bring, to, we, we swore you're coming, Laura. You will be there. So, so show it to, show it to them. Here it is right here. I made the, I made the Vlita yeah. and I, I put some I, I got the nice feta from the Mediterranean market by the house. Um, yeah. I didn't buy the big block because it was thirty nine bucks. And it, it weighs like five pounds, yeah. <laughs> but I bought the, the shredded one and I put it or the, the crumbles and I put it on top with a garden tomato and lots of lemon and oil. And so, mm. I mean, this is a this is a. <laughs> A oh simple gosh. recipe, but tell me how good it is, Laura. Come on. Oh, very good. <laughs> so walk us through this recipe because you pick the greens and what? Uh, olive oil, butter, garlic, salt, pepper. It's just butter. olive oil and, and 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 lemon, and that's it. And I put some salt and pepper. That that was it. And I, I did boil it with a little bit of salt in the water. I, yeah, I yeah. did do that. Oh, so you boiled. You didn't. Um... No, you just boil this one. It's so. <laughs> oh, man, it's good. It's... Are those the leaves I gave you the other day? Yes, they are. You guys keep going. You go. I'm going to eat those. Very nice and tender. Boy, oh, boy. Mm. You know, you had another recipe, too, that you said fennel pie. And that that made me that just put a uh, 
exclamation point in my in my head and i was like fennel pie hmm tell me about it sure so in my garden it's weird you know i don't i don't chop stuff down if it looks like it's going to be consumed right so (laughs) a few years ago parsley ran over my garden just everywhere i had more parsley than smith's and and it was just everywhere this year fennel did and it just comes up so i think i see little green things coming up i know it's either fennel or dill and uh, it turned out to be fennel but they grew up to be four or five feet tall and just all over in the center of my garden which you didn't see because we harvested it so we just cut it off trim the the fronds from the stalk and you get a pile of leafy fennel so with that you do the the same thing you do on a spinach pie in fact it, it has a little bit of spinach in it so you just boil the fennel with some spinach, it makes the, uh, the texture correct. And whether you roll your own pie dough or you create your own bread with dough with like just simple flour, salt, water, and as you and I might put in grappa or uh-huh. <laughs> or some, something like that in, into the dough. You roll it out, put some in the middle, fry it, and you have a fennel pie. And I'm telling you, it's really freaking good. And it's partly it's because it's not the same thing that you get every day, but it's it's a good pie. It sounds delicious. I, w- I want to try that or I at least want to come over when you make it so that I can get the gist of how I can make it myself, because this is a this is a simple recipe, but you use those ingredients from your garden straight from your garden right. and Boy, most of the stuff I make from the garden, if I put salt and pepper and crack or salt and cracked red pepper and a little olive oil, that's all it needs because it's so fresh and delicious. I mean, we you can't go wrong. Uh, And let's put that out there. Boy, folks who aren't growing in their own food and in their own garden. um, Yeah, you're missing out. Here's the couple little tricks of gardening that I know. And a for myself, as I said, I learned over time because I don't have acreage or anything. My garden's what, 30 by 30 or something. It's still a good-sized garden. But uh, I, I really put a lot of plants in there. And so I used to plant, oh, let's plant some of XYZ vegetable and something ABC vegetable. And just because I could grow it, and then I'd get like, you know, two little Brussels sprouts or something. I wasn't <laughs> Corn I gave up on long ago because you can get corn for 10 cents in here. I mean, so I don't waste space on stuff I'm going to be angry about. So I fill it with stuff I eat all the time. I love tomatoes. I love a Greek salad. I love cucumbers, have onions growing. Uh, I can make a BLT if I could grow a pig, but (laughs) I, I, I can't. But I just produce stuff that we grow stuff that we will consume and consume right away. And so, uh, uh, that's my suggestion to people. Only grow what you're going to really like and consume and grow lots of it. You can can it, you can bottle it, you can freeze it. Yeah, I learned that the hard way last year. I grew ground cherries, don't like them. Thought I liked mustard greens, turned out I don't like them. So I'm not growing that. <laughs> that's how you find out. And then next time you get the pack that doesn't have mustard greens in it. And, uh, you, you know, you might have varieties of lettuce and stuff. Or mine, My lettuce we dug out and then I replaced it with uh, arugula. The spinach patch I had is now replaced. Al saw it with like nine uh, eggplants or 12 eggplants. It was like, they're two or three feet tall, right? And so now I'm going to have eggplants yeah. in space and about three feet by f- not even four feet. And and uh, I, I, I do. I, 
there's books out there about about companion crop growing, how they help each other. Also, I don't have a bug in the garden. I don't have any, you know, snails in the garden. I put marigolds in there to keep keep certain things away. Uh, garlic. I mean, garlic. If you can't grow garlic, you can't grow a garden. <laughs> Give it up. Right. You know. So uh, another thing, let's talk, let's go back to culture and our heritage and. Wait, you guys are related? Look at Al's face and look at my face. <laughs> and, and you know, I mean, the, the saying in Italian, and, and, and Al knows too, because his, his nonna used to, you know, grab his little face and pinch it and say, una faccia, so, <laughs> una faccia, una razza, one face, one race. And that's what that means. And it's an Italian phrase and the Greeks say it too. And it's because basically, I mean, both of our countries have been consumed by armies for, you know, since the millennia. And we've had our own armies and military. Alexander the Great conquers the world. And then, then the Romans come along and do it. But along the way, prior to Alexander and prior to the Romans, the Greeks settled to the West. And uh, their explorers colonized Sicily. Calabria in southern Italy, all the way up to Naples. Some of the best Greek ruins in the world are in Sicily and just south of Naples. And that's now, where I'm from. Of Naples. If you go to the southern part of the boot, not the heel of Italy boot, not the toe, there's still a Greek dialect of Italian spoken there. So, and that goes, that's from 2,000, 3,000 years ago. And the influence of both cultures on each other, because when the Romans came this way to the east, ran over Greece on the way to Istanbul or something, you know, there's a lot of Italian, it wasn't called Italian at the time, Roman heritage, uh, that peninsula heritage spread throughout uh, uh, Greece. You can see it really dominant today in the islands between Greece and Italy. There's a lot of Italian influence, uh, you know, on the islands like uh, Corfu, uh, Kefalonia, Zakynthos, between the two between the two nations so paisan what's the word in greece for paisan paisan paisano my friend well we don't have like paisan no we, we would just say philos more you think you know, my, my friend or there's others that are kind of slangy but we don't have a real paisan like word uh-huh you say it would you just keep it simple. You know, there was one thing you said that really hit home. That was uh, that was great. While we were eating and drinking wine, a little wine and talking, you said um, you're merging hobby and lifestyle or uh, hobby and lifestyle. And I'm going to add culture in there, too. Yeah. And we pass that along. And uh, now you're past you've passed that along to your daughter and your daughter has a cookbook and uh, tell the story because she really didn't start out that way. <laughs> no, there's, there's Lenny. She, uh, no, she was the one that hated everything. She wouldn't <laughs> eat vegetables. She, you know, she faked it and put it in the napkins and, and put it under the table or put it in her shirt pocket when nobody's looking. And she didn't like them. Uh, she had opportunity to go to Greece on a, uh, like, that wasn't a cultural thing. She was a, a mentor or a counselor at a camp in Greece. And while there, you know, you just eat what they serve, right? So all of a sudden she became enamored of tomatoes. And if you've ever been to, I've been to both, but if you're in Greece particularly, they're tomatoes. When you have a salad 
of cucumber tomato, it's really simple, but you go, oh, that's what a tomato is supposed to taste like. Mm -hmm. And that's what a cucumber is supposed to taste like. So anyway, she became enamored of liking tomatoes and from there it grew. So she was already doing a blog on uh, lifestyle, fitness and so on. And she started to weave in some stories about health and how you maintain a better body, healthy body by eating well, fresh vegetables and so on. That became popular. And, you know, as it grew, she started to share recipes and that grew into the cookbook. But no, Eleni, 10 years ago, she wouldn't garden and she wouldn't eat a tomato. Now she's an she's author and that cookbook is quite popular and she is a very good gardener. She, she, she doesn't mind getting out there and really working it. And uh, that's, to me, it's nice because it was my grandfather than me than my daughter. And uh, it's an incredibly nice feeling to have that culturally go down the road, down the road. It's uh, all you can eat Greek food, life and travel and Eleni Saltis. And there's pictures of Nana in here showing the recipes. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, this is culture and this is where food comes across the board. And, you know, we all we all have our own dishes and our own own things that we pass on and it, it, we, we're still eating those things. If people would spend more time in their gardens and their kitchens and their back porch sharing, it would be a much better world. I mean, we tend to isolate ourselves, drive up to a window, don't, I mean, we'll, we roll down the car window just long enough to, you know, pass a credit card back, take a sack and go home, shut our doors and eat within our confines. A, we're not eating very healthily. And I do it all the time. But, uh, but B, you're, you're, you're isolated. Yet every time you get to a dinner table, doesn't matter if it's from the subcontinent of Africa to here to Italy, wherever, people love sharing food and cultural ideas. It is, it's the peacemaker, you know? I, I just think uh, if people do more of that, and by the way, if you add in some homemade wine, it really <laughs> settles it. Thanks so much, John. Really, I mean, I look forward to sitting down and, and partaking with you again and building our friendship around food and our culture and growing in the garden. And boy, you know, it's uh, it's the way, like you said, it, it's something that brings us all together. And, and what a great thing. Yeah, well, you're welcome, Al. We'll need to get Laura out there, of course. I've been promising her that. But now that you've had to bleep them, you know, I may get that out. <laughs> <laughs> and if you'd like to come sometime, but you know, we can, the four of us sit down. I don't know, but uh, you introduced me a lot of things. I love your garden, Al. I mean, I told you how nostalgic it made me feel. So uh, it, it, it is all of that. And, and I appreciate the time. Thank you. Al Dynstrick 9 talking with John Saltis. Stick around. Al's got another one-on-one -on -one with Shannon Barham, the diet technician for Green Phoenix Farm. First, one more song from a band that will be on stage at Craft Lake City, August 13th, 14th, and 15th at the DIY Festival coming up at Utah State Fair Park. Our guide to homegrown music tonight, Audrey Lockie, Entertainment Coordinator. So La La Diabla is a trio. They play kind of psyche surf garage music, some really cool stuff. They're uh, opening up the KRCL stage on Friday night, which is kind of our... Uh, psych rock alt rock showcase for the festival on friday night on the krcl stage so they're kicking us off from 5 30 to 6 there what do they sound like um you know it's it's scuzzy it's it's fuzzy it, but it's also it's got those tropical vibes they got the good surfy riffs and stuff 
So it's fun. They, they have a good time. It's, it's, a, it's party music for sure. What are we going to hear? Uh, the song Sugar House, Sugar High. La La Diabla, fresh and homegrown on KRCL 90.9. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones. Tonight is Punk Rock Farmer Friday. Aldine Strychnine has a couple of conversations he's sharing with us tonight. And this one here is with Shannon Barham of Green Phoenix Farm. Hey, Shannon. So great to see you. It was really nice to meet you um, at the garden the other day down at the Green Phoenix Farm. Hey, Al. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, um, you're you're new with Wasatch Community Gardens. You're a nutritionist a diet tell, tell me the title again <laughs> so it's a registered diet technician diet tech 
step below a dietitian just because I haven't finished my degree yet. So <laughs> diet technician. And um, you, you, you're helping feeding the ladies down there and the lunches that are made. And those lunches come straight from the garden. Yeah, absolutely. So um, every Wednesday I'm down there and we just cook together. We celebrate the produce that they're working so hard to grow and just coming up with some farm fresh meal ideas every week. And we also like to combine in um, pantry items because that is really helpful for these women who a lot of times get a large portion of their food from food pantries. So we're just combining those two farm fresh and pantry items into inexpensive and just really fun food. I told you we could talk. It would be really kind of punk rock to talk about big ag and the, the nasty <laughs> stuff about it and this and that. And, and I said, but it doesn't have to really be the, you know, the focus of things, but let's talk about it because, <laughs> but <laughs> because it is punk rock kind of, and, and folks should be kind of, you know, some authority is not so great. And uh, this has really taken a hold of our food system, the mm -hmm. way most people live the, and buy their food and the supermarket aspect and all that. Give us your take. Absolutely. Okay. I could talk about this for a while. So <laughs> whenever you want. Um, so in order to understand kind of what big ag is, we need to go back in time. So 150, 200 years ago here in the United States, people generally ate what they grew. Uh, food didn't travel very far. People brought their cultures, their food production practices, and then they would pass them down through generations. And if you bought you know, meat, either you grew it or it was from a local butcher. And that sounds pretty idyllic now, but life was pretty hard for these people. Um, a majority of the average American's time was just spent producing food and their entire livelihoods and survival were subject to droughts and diseases and pests that could wipe out an entire season's worth of crops. And so uh, it was, it's, it sounds great now, but it was kind of tough living. And then we saw in the early to like mid 1900s, so like hundred years ago or so, people started leaving rural America and started migrating to cities. And eventually we saw these suburbs pop up. And the farms that were left, like that were there, they grew larger and they had to feed this huge, just booming population. And so at the time, most people really embraced these kind of, you know, life-changing technologies of fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides. And that really streamlined the process of farming. And you started to see large, large 2000 plus acre farms and rather than growing, you know, six different foods for a family, they started specializing in one to two crops. And um, a lot of that ended up being corn, wheat, and rice, like these calorie-dense, uh, inexpensive foods. And this new tech made farming so much more predictable and efficient. And plus, the government started subsidizing ag activity, which is another punk rock topic for another day. Mm -hmm. um, but if we contrast that with today where you and me, we can live in a city, we can work our nine to five. And whenever we want food, you know, we jump in our car, drive a quarter mile to the supermarket. And regardless of whether it's the dead of winter or the peak of summer, we can pick up a huge, perfect looking ripe cucumber or a tomato or whatever produce we want really. And we pay pennies on the dollar for it. And that tomato um, is, just consistently beautiful. If there's a bruise in it, we don't buy it. And this really easy, efficient, cheap, cheap food system is key to our way of life. We have time and money freed up for education, for entertainment, 
for vacations, you know, and foods sold in the supermarket system is predictable. It's picture perfect and above all cheap and so cheap. But unfortunately, this um, miraculous shift in our food system and all this convenience, it's really come at a great cost. And we're just starting to understand and see what those costs are. And that's kind of where big ag and all this controversy comes in. The, you know, there's, um, we've done, we've had some folks on and we've done some research on the nutritional value of that food that's produced with all the fertilizers and with all the, um, uh, you know, it's fertilized the soil so much that they have to keep fertilizing the soil just to get these plants to grow. And then they have to genetically modify the seed after the ground is totally, there's nothing good left in it. So what kind of nutrition is in the food at the, that, that this perfect, maybe looking food, but what kind of nutrition value does it have? Yeah. So that's kind of one of the costs to this large scale, um, big ag cultures, there is a, and this is kind of due to a couple different practices. The nutrition is, I will say before I say anything, keep eating vegetables wherever you can get them, eat more, feed your kids more. Vegetables are so important and hardly any of us get enough, but um, there's definitely a degradation of certain uh, vitamins like vitamin C and other, um, what's the word, fragile type of compounds. There are a lot more antioxidants in the homegrown varieties that you're getting directly to your plate. And they're, apart from that, you mentioned the fertilizers. And I just think that is part of a big cost, a big con to our current food system is there's a lot of environmental degradation. And that comes in the form of this fertilizer being runoff and creating dead zones of entire waterways. There's just a lot of uh, negative aspects of this system. And yeah, like you said, one of them is the less nutrient dense. Um, additionally, when you can choose kind of what seeds you plant, you can choose heirloom varieties, which traditionally, like generally speaking, have a lot more nutrients in them. And when you go for these really, um, you just, cultivate it yourself. You can control what's in the soil. You can control the potassium level, the iron level. And so your vegetables really just are better the quicker you can get them to your mouth from the time they're harvested. You know, uh, we have another friend and his philosophy is, uh, his name's Randy down in at Mesa Farm. His philosophy is if the ground is so unnaturally fertilized, the plant actually can't emit a sugar that it emits in order to draw in the right um, the right microbes biome stuff and the right microbes and, and the elements that are in the soil. And so the plant doesn't get the, as healthy or as nutrient dense as, as it can be. And uh, let's, let's go from that to um, carbon, like a carbon put footprint thing. I know the, the traveling and harvesting thing on a big, large scale, um, it, it might be, here let's let's do let's do it like this um going uh with the harvest and, tr and transport to supermarket there's a there's a lot that goes along with that on a large scale for big ag true mm -hmm, absolutely yeah yeah so to kind of illustrate this let's talk about our tomatoes i guess that y'all were talking about earlier um when you have when you buy a tomato from a supermarket that tomato has gone through a really really long kind of 
travel. So let's say we start with a tomato that's grown in Florida. That tomato is usually going to be picked at when it's still green, when it's still really hard. And that way during transit, it doesn't, if it gets bumped and bruised, it doesn't get affected. Cause like you were saying at the supermarket, you get a perfect looking tomato. And so that tomato is still green when it arrives at the grocery store and there they'll artificially ripen it with a with a hormone or a gas called ethylene that's naturally produced by plants but they have artificially created it and they'll expose the the unripe fruit to that which then causes it to turn red so that's why when you take a take a tomato from the store and look at it next to a tomato that's been ripened on the vine there's a distinct difference in color and flavor and everything and yeah it's because that process has been artificially um like sped up so uh, so <clears throat> actually so this is why i understand the flavor of the tomato now from the one from the store <clears throat> is still so dense and hard because it and but the outside is red because they've 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 modified that and made it turn red and i think the inside is still kind of still kind of not ripe actually and doesn't have all that flavor or anything the goodness of a tomato you go pick in your backyard mm -hmm. and then you to bring it in the house when it's ripe and all you you don't have to worry because you're only carrying it from the garden to the house so it, you can wait till it gets ripe and it's tender and and all that that's the best food we can eat isn't it Mm -hmm, absolutely. And that's why it's so the homegrown uh, tomato is so much sweeter because it's had time to really take in all that energy from the sun and energy from the soil and just turn it into something just delicious, how it's meant to be, you know. Awesome. We talk about health and, and just the healthy aspects for our body, but there's actually some mental health things, too, that you, you mentioned. Yeah, um, there are a lot. It's kind of an emerging body of research that is connecting the dots between gardening just as a hobby and mental health. So being involved in gardening activities, they find, they're finding that when people do that, they have reduced anxiety, they have reduced depressive symptoms. And then just from a biochemical standpoint, when you're outside in the sunlight, you're getting that vitamin D synthesis. And that is crucial for mood stabilization as well. Um, and then one interesting thing too is there they're, these are really kind of emerging. So these studies have only been done in mice, but they're finding that exposure to some of the bacteria that's found in soil, that beneficial bacteria, that actually raises levels of a certain bacteria in your microbiome that has anxiety relieving effects. So we're not making this up. Um, and the other thing is the social aspect. When you grow food and you're proud of it, you wanna share it with your neighbors. And just like uh, you were talking about with John, you have that connection, you have less isolation, you want to share a meal and sit around a table. And um, there are just so many benefits to getting involved in either homegrown or locally grown food. And then there's, of course, just that grounding energy of really connecting with the earth and slowing down and realizing that some things don't need to be rushed and just kind of getting in touch with nature is just so healing. I, I saw you jotting down some things while we were talking to John. Is there anything that you wanted to address that, that we were talking about? Did you write? Yeah, well, it was more just, just the idea of how growing food is a way to preserve culture, a way to celebrate culture. Wasatch Community Gardens has this uh, really cool program going on. It's called, uh, what's it called? 
Uh, sabores de mi patria. Exactly. <laughs> sabores de mi patria. And it's just awesome. It's a wonderful celebration of Mexican culture and the, the Las Tres Hermanas and how they, there's just this disconnect in current youth um, from her, their heritage and culture. And it's just coming together and celebrating all of the beauty that is in food production and heritage and it's just all interconnected and so beautiful so anyway anyone out there I think they have a big thing coming up soon for the Sabores program <laughs> <laughs> and so <clears throat> we we talked a lot about par, uh, preparing and eating food with John and uh, and dishes and simple dishes and stuff do you have something that from the garden that you've been serving now that maybe folks might have in their garden that we can talk about a dish that you're you've been doing at the farm yeah, well, kind of like you talked about just that simple tomato and cucumber salad. If you throw in some, you can either take kind of an Italian twist on it, throw some basil in there, some fresh basil, or you can make it a little more, I don't know where cilantro comes from, but throw cilantro in there, whatever herbs you like. That is one of my favorite things because it's so easy. You just need one tomato and one cucumber and throw some garlic in there. It's just delicious. Sometimes the simplest things are the best, that's for sure. Yeah, and then today we did, um, we used, because you know, everyone has prolific zucchini, I think. There, no one can figure out what to do with all the zucchini they have. Today we made some vegetarian tacos with zucchini and black beans as the base, and then we topped it with a really good um, coleslaw and some pickled onions, and it was just, it's just fun. So kind of getting a little creative with your meatless meals, I think, is another fun way to use those garden items. You know, I, I mentioned that I'd been kind of on a quest to eat a little healthier and over the last, oh, quite a few years now, eating a lot of vegetables from the garden and from local farmers and stopping to stopping eating, um, uh, buying meat from the grocery store that might have, you know, all the hormones and, and the antibiotics and that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, how much better is that for you? Tell, tell folks that uh, a little bit about what changing that lifestyle is. Yeah, so kind of just turning toward a more locally based um, diet that is helpful for yourself. But I think the kind of the bigger picture is health of the environment because we want to preserve our earth and our lands for our children and our children's children, right? And so um, by turning to these local food sources, and that you know are sustainable practices, that you know the animals are being treated well during their life. Um, that I think is where the big impact comes. There's a lot of things about antibiotic resistance and a lot of negative things about how um, large scale animal productions are functioning right now in our country. But, you know, I think apart from just tasting better, I mean, I'm sure have you tasted the difference as you've switched your meat? Oh yes, oh yeah. Yeah. And like, so, and that's the thing too, with produce, when you're trying to encourage your family to eat them, they're not going to eat the tomato that tastes like dirty dishwater from the store, but you know, they're a lot more likely to eat that one that's naturally sweetened by the sun. So anyway, so they're, they're all in their entire facets of your life that can just be greatly improved by turning to these local and homegrown food sources. Um, Shannon, I really appreciate you being with us. Is there anything you want to add that like um, what folks can be doing and and should be doing to get on this get on this kick. Yeah, I would say, you know, it's not too late in the season to go grab an herb or grab a tomato plant and just put it in your windowsill. And if it dies, you know, if you're not killing plants, you're not growing as a gardener. Um, <laughs> or if you can't do that, 
tomorrow, Saturday, go to your local farmer's market and chat with the farmers there, see how they're, what they're proud of and talk to them and um, maybe connect with Wasatch Community Gardens with some of their programs. And there's, there are other just really wonderful resources out there for anyone who wants to get involved in the local food system. Uh, uh, knowing where your food comes from and, and actually knowing the farmer, it gives you a satisfaction, I think, that, you know, um, you go to the, you go to the farm. Hey, how are you? You know, yeah, it's mm-hmm. just like you're creating that community and that, and that's a big thing. That's, that's what, that's what KRCL is all about is community building and, and creating that community. And, and I'm so glad you came and were with us today and, and help us to do that. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much, Al. You have a great day. Shannon Barham of Green Phoenix Farm. Check tonight's show notes for a link. My thanks to Al Dynstrick, 9 KRCL's Punk Rock Farmer, all of our guests, and you for tuning in. But we do have one more homegrown tune to share with you. Craft Lake City is coming up August 13th, 14th, and 15th at the Utah State Fair Park. They always have a couple of music stages, including one hosted by KRCL. So we're featuring music from the local bands that will be playing at Craft Lake City. Here again is Audrey Lockie, entertainment coordinator, to help us close out the show with some fresh and homegrown music. This last artist we're playing is Jacob T. Skeen, who's also playing on Saturday uh, from 6 to 6.30 p.m. And Jacob's really great. Uh, You know, he does everything by himself, whether that's drumming and guitaring at the same time or a lot of feedback and dancing around the stage. Uh, He's a really energetic performer. His songs are really cool. And, you know, he's got that blues punk garage rockabilly kind of thing that's just really really entertaining and um yeah i'm a huge fan of his music so i'm really excited to have him play at the festival this year so audrey what's the website where people can get more details in the lineup but also ticket info right you can go to craftlakecity.com to find all of that the links are at the top of the page to look at who's participating this year find tickets uh find out if you want to volunteer or join our team in any way. We're always looking for people to help out with the DIY festival. So uh, yeah, all that can be found at craftlakecity.com. What's the song we're going to hear from Jacob? We're hearing Jacob T. Skeen with Storehouse of Souls. Fresh and homegrown, taking us out. Punk Rock Farmer Friday on KRCL. (laughs) 